Welcome, welcome, welcome to Creativity in Focus. I forgot the name of the podcast. That's the first phrase. Creativity in Focus. A live weekly podcast where we highlight an artist and its art every single week. Isn't that fun? Okay, let me tell you about my guest today. She is a polymer clay artist. Yes, that's how the definition is in her website, but she also likes to play in other mediums as well. So we are going to tackle all that. She has some products and she has uh, also licensed her art as well. Her name is Lisa Pavelka. She's in Nevada right now, is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Las She's Vegas to be Las exact. Las Vegas, yes. <laughs> uh, she has been, uh, no, working with polymer clay since 1989. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, A long time. Yeah. We are really excited to have you here. Uh, can you hear me yeah. well? Oh, I can <laughs> okay. hear you well. Okay. So, Lisa, tell me what attracted you to polymer clay? Well, um, I, I came to polymer clay actually as a way to kind of keep myself intellectually stimulated. Uh, I had chosen to leave my uh, trained profession and career to be home with my children when they were young. I thought that was going to be a temporary sabbatical type of situation. And as much as I love my kids and, and they're just amazing, um, I was feeling like I, I just didn't have the stimulation and creativity that I was exposed to in my actual career. So when I went back to some of the mediums I dabbled in for hobbies and uh, like stained glass and painting, I realized that they just really weren't conducive to putting my children first. They weren't safe to have around my children. They were the type of mediums they couldn't just walk away from when a diaper needed change or a meal needed to be made. So um, I actually was going through my local craft store and I kept seeing it. And part of me had always wanted to try my hand at sculpting. Oh, Yeah. So, um, and then the thing that caught my attention was it, uh, there wasn't really, the internet didn't exist for us, and there weren't books or magazines that featured polymer clay at the time. Uh, there weren't guilds, and there was just not a lot of information or resources out there. But what I did see, that it was non-toxic. And I quickly learned it didn't harden until I was ready to cure it at a very low temperature. I didn't need special equipment like a kiln. And I just started playing with it, and it just snowballed from there. <laughs> What amazes me about polymer clay, and it's the fact that, well, for, first of all, color, right? It's already yeah. there. It doesn't yes. I, I'm not a good painter, for example. So having something that has color is fantastic. But it's how many techniques and different, you, you can always give a new twist to polymer clay. So, you know, if, if, if you'd like to create, it's really one way to go that re leads to success, correct? Yes, absolutely. It's a very user-friendly medium. It's a very safe and clean medium. It doesn't require a lot of expensive tools, um, although most people who get the clay bud usually find that they need hundreds and hundreds of tools because mm -hmm. they can't, you can never have too many textures and too many things that manipulate it. But it, uh, it plays well in the sandbox with other mediums. It can, can be combined or added. Um, it's just probably one of the most versatile mediums I've ever worked in. You mentioned color. Wow. Color yeah. is 
such an attractive quality about it because you can blend new colors and custom create palettes. And um, what we're going to be focusing on in the class next month is how we can take the clay and make a true gradient blend effect, mm-hmm. but we're going to take it way beyond that. Yeah. So um, I have clay that's over 25 years old. Uh, I wow. make Millefiori canes, which is uh-huh. a whole a whole realm unto itself. And the clay is still workable. Uh, the manufacturers will tell you it's got a shelf life, mm-hmm. but when properly stored, it's pretty much indefinitely usable. You know, I have to agree with you because I actually have some clay that I brought from Brazil 14 years ago <laughs> that I still use. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. I want to show some of your works for those that don't know you well, and I would love if you could tell us a little bit about the process or what inspired you to create that piece. Oh, I'd love to. Okay. This is the first one. Can you see? Yes, I can see that. So that I call done and not to get in trouble with uh, Apple, but uh, I call that podcasting. It's a series of pods, and um, sometimes I'll just make one pod. They're hollow forms in clay, so they're very wearable in that they're light um, and uh, easy easy to, you know, you're not going to have fatigue from wearing uh, a larger piece, which most of my pod pieces are quite sizable, especially for mm-hmm. people who like big and bold jewelry. Uh, so there's different mes- methods for creating hollow form jewelry, but um, I think the three pieces you're looking at at the top are, um, well, let's see. Well, let's take a look here. On the right and the middle center, those are hollow. The one on the left that looks kind of basket weave is uh, actually basket weave. And then the ones you brought up there uh-huh. are mostly pods, but uh, the one in the middle and the centerpiece is um, a domed piece with holes in it and has a oh, polymer clay yes. background. Okay. But um, I Sometimes I use things like Millefiori, which this actually showcases in a little bit of a, a gradient effect. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I use my foil effects when I make pods. And you can see I like to construct them different ways. Yes. Uh, in the first one, those were all free swinging. So they had a, a bit of a kinetic component to them, where these are stationary. They're all connected uh, with wires, some decoratively mm-hmm. formed wires or wires that are embellished with Swarovski crystal. And those yeah. two at the top, the green and the red one with the stripes, that, what technique do you call that one? Um, that's actually a type of Melifiori. It's an adaptation of Melifiori oh. where I take uh, some striped layers of clay and I embed them into uh, a substrate or another surface of clay. And then after doing that, I form the shape and the hollow pod, if you will. Now, the one, if you see on the left, that you, you might be able to detect a little bit of texture where it's silvery and kind of gray toned. Yes. Uh-huh. So that was all smooth at one point, but I love taking different tools and it's fairly simple. That's just a ball tip stylus. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's familiar with toll painting will know what that is. And I just will cherry pick areas I like to highlight with texture while it leaves the other areas smooth. So you you really heighten the visual interest by creating dimensionality along with the, the color and the vibrancy. That's fantastic. Let's see another one. 
Look, oh, I love this one. Uh, there we're getting into some gradient blending. And I love this because this is really especially nice for anybody who's going to be joining us for the class. So gradient blending is, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the history during the class. I'm not going to go into too much of that now. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's also known as a Skinner blend. And it's named for an amazing, incredible clay artist who also uh, worked for NASA named Judith Skinner. So she made everybody who works with clay, she made our lives a whole lot easier when she came up with her gradient technique. So the class I'll be doing is taking the basic technique, showing how to make it foolproof, showing how to get the most bang for your buck, and then taking it in all new directions. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the things, for instance, so you see this is very monochromatic and it's black and white. Uh, but the thing is, when you use high contrast colors, like black and white or red to white. Can you go back you, to that, please? Yeah, you tend to get um, very little mid-tones. So there's some special ways when we do a traditional Skinner blend where we manipulate it and we cut the clay at, at a different angle and shape so that we get more of the mid-range so it goes from light to black with, with plenty of mid-range in between. Yes, yes. It's phenomenal, this piece. Thank you. That's a little Let's purse, Minotti Air purse. And I love to cover cases. So. A lot of people, you know, you get cookie tins on the holidays and you get all toy tins and there's all kinds of wonderful coverable materials. And if anybody's new to polymer clay, you can bake it and cure it at uh, over anything that doesn't burn at 250 or with other brands of clay, 275 degrees. And that's almost everything except for styrofoam and children. They don't do not try that at home. Do not put no. them in the oven. But metal, wood, paper, fabric, feathers, pearls, crystals, glass, uh, even some plastics are bakeable. But in this case, this was a small tin. And you see the gradient there and the vibrancy. And that technique uh, was one where I took one of my texture stamps that's in my product line inked it and did it over the top of a Skinner blend background. Mm -hmm. Then I painstakingly textured in between the black lines with, with a series of different size styluses, baked the lid, came back and added the little Millefiori cane edges that look like uh, uh, leaves mm -hmm. that surround the edge. Very beautiful. Oh, and this you. one, this is a journal? Yeah, that's what's a tiny little... Um, no, I know some people still do them. I think they're wonderful, but uh, they they kind of peaked uh, many years ago. Artist trading cards. So I used to do artist trading cards with mostly clay and other materials rather than paper. Uh, but although some of my cards had paper in them as well. So I like to kind of put my own twist on it. And I made little artist trading card books. So mm -hmm. that's a little, that's like a business card size. That's very uh, cool. card and it's got you can see a little closure on there or magnetic closure with the tassel but the thing the reason i wanted you to um, share this picture was that it's using a gradient background which mm -hmm. that's on a lot of the work on i sent you uh, but it's very subtle and even though i like big and bold and bright and colorful sometimes less is more and uh, it just really kind of it becomes a focal element of that piece that the just subtle gradient that's fantastic. Lisa, I have some, um, we, we will go back to the pictures in a second, okay. but I have some questions for you. Is that okay? Wonderful. Okay. Uh, Uli Sang saying, hi Lisa, today is my birthday and I received several of your texture stamps. Yay. Thank Yay. you for sharing your pretty <laughs> designs. <laughs> Betty Jean, uh, hello from Betty in Ponca City, 
Oklahoma. Oh. Green tree. Seems like no matter how many tools I have, I am always missing the one I need. <laughs> LOL. Oh. <laughs> Make that's true to all of us, right? <laughs> Hi, Betty. Yeah. And, and, ha and happy birthday wishes. But yeah, yes. Betty's a good friend of mine and a very talented artist in her own right. Oh, really? But she and I share some of, many of the same addictions. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> Healthy addictions to tools yes, and texture. Yes. And, and this person, I think you know personally as, as well, Jen Rowe. Think uh -huh. she's your neighbor. Uh, how do you price your work? Okay, so um, I'll try not to to go into too much detail because I could talk about that all day. I, I do a lot of seminars called uh, "Profits from Your Passion" for people mm -hmm. who want to make either uh, you know supplemental income or make their living uh, with their artwork. So out there, there's a formula in the art world that that kind of works but doesn't always work the formula goes like this and some of you, the viewers probably are familiar with it take your materials and multiply it times three well in some cases uh like polymer clay which is incredibly economical uh, mm -hmm. you can do you can make a lot with very little with your clay so where the value lies in the clay is the skill the artist brings to it and it's a very it can be very labor intensive um, and also dem demand for your work, uh, the quality of your work, those all factor into it. So what I usually tell people is if you take your materials and you multiply it times three, and that seems fair for the amount of skill and that it, you took to learning your craft um, and how much time you put into it, then yeah, stick with that pretty much standard formula that people like to throw out there. But for me... Um, you know, I look at people, I'm going to like talk a little bit about the, the seed bead world. And if any of your viewers are familiar with an incredibly talented genius at beading, Diane Fitzgerald, she's a friend of mine. The work that she does, I, she and other people like around the world, sometimes literally take hundreds and hundreds of hours to make one piece. And it's mind boggling, the, the, the talent that they bring to their work. But if you gave them what they were worth per hour, nobody would ever buy it. And in fact, when they price their work, it's usually priced at really pennies on the hours, what they're making. And people still balk at it and think it's too expensive because they don't have any idea of how much skill and labor intensity went into it. Mm -hmm. So this is the formula I give people, especially if you're going to try to make a career from this you now. This is the point where I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. You probably won't get wealthy uh, making your living at art. There's a lot of variables. Um, and that's why my seminars are really good, because we talk about what you need to know going in and how to determine if that's the right career path for you. But uh, the best way is maybe to start part-time. But for me, I tell people, how much money do you need to make per hour when you work to make it worth your while? So... If you're okay only making $1.50 per hour, which is what, in some cases, that's maybe all you can get for your work, which sounds ridiculous, and it is, but uh, it depends on where you live and the economy there and, and the type of work you do and, and how you promote yourself. Promoting is really 80% of what you do if you're going to sell your work. But if you're okay making $10 an hour or $20 an hour, then if a piece took you two hours... And you also want to factor in your materials. And let's say you have $4 of materials in there and it took you two hours and you want to get really 44 out of it. If you can sell it for 44, 
then you're right on the money. You know, you, you might have to vary what you make per hour, uh, what you feel like you're, you, you know, I'd like to make $200 an hour. Who wouldn't? But I probably won't make that with a piece that I sell. So I have to look at what's reasonable and fair for people and attractive, an attractive price point. The last thing I'm going to share, a tip on selling your work, never underprice your work. It's probably more dangerous to price it too low than it is to price it too high. Mm -hmm. Because if it's too high, you can always offer somebody a discount or make an adjustment, but you can't bring the price up. And that really comes into play too if you're going to wholesale your work. Because typical wholesale, if anybody's new to selling work and haven't you haven't done that before, if you find a store, somebody wants to carry your work, typically they only want to pay you half of what your suggested retail is. So those are all things you have to think about when you price your work. And I hope that gives people an idea, not just one standard formula that doesn't apply to all cases of, of how they should proceed. That's very good because, yes, Price is always a question all artists get, but it's such a, a topic with so many variables. And like you said, you have to take everything into consideration right. from how much well, you want to make to where you're selling plays a mm -hmm. big role. For example, uh, I live here in Utah. We are known <laughs> to, uh, that, that you have to have, for example, I work in consulting for many years. We had a different mm -hmm. price for Utah than for the rest of the country. Right, because here families tend to be very big, money yes. tends to be tied to people, so we have to adapt no matter what. Right now, Lisa, uh, on this topic still, uh, like you said, you're probably not going to get rich, but I know that you, for example, you have found different revenues, uh, different channels of revenues inside your passion. Correct? You were published yes. author. You t tell us a little bit about that because. I always think that people need to understand that, yes, we love to have our hands making things, but mm -hmm. there are many ways that from what we create, we can also generate uh, money. So tell us a little bit about how you do that. Yes, I'd be happy to. So um, my, my degree is in journalism, and I took that into television production as my original career. But uh, I had to do a lot of training in technical journalism. And you don't have to be a journalist to write a book or to write magazines and or write for magazines. And unfortunately, magazines aren't what they once were. People mm -hmm. aren't buying them with the frequency that they once did. And so advertising revenues go down and magazines have either gone by the wayside or they, they aren't published as frequently. And there's definitely fewer of them. But people do blogging. Um, there, you can consult, you can uh, coach people. I do some coaching. And for me, uh, products uh, came about by accident. I never intended to have my own product line. When they say that necessity is the mother of invention, uh, I have a little twist on that saying, I think desperation is uh, the mother of invention. Because pretty much all of my products and my designs were the result of being desperate to have a tool or a product or to create an effect that I couldn't find anything already out there that would do, give me that desired outcome. So, and products are a whole nother tricky ball game. Um, in this climate, it can be really hard to get a product going because sadly, so many uh, younger people that might've been coming up through the creative world um, 
they're every so enthralled with their phones that we're not see, we're seeing a dip in creativity, which is really sad. And I hope that that's just a cyclical thing and people will come back around because you do hear a lot about, you know, the maker movement and, and that incorporates a lot of different areas, including artwork and crafting, but uh, teaching for me, um, is, is one of my favorite ways, not just to make money. It's just one of my favorite things to do in the world. You know, teaching isn't for everybody because, um, you're always going to have challenges. It, you, sometimes I'll have a class that's only advanced. And then mm -hmm. I get a person who's an absolute beginner mm -hmm. and they're like, Oh, but I'm a quick study. Well, maybe they are. But even if you're quick study, you might find something more challenging and maybe the class you're taking with me is more challenging. Not to say they're not going to pick up on it, but they may draw more attention away from me so that I'm not giving enough attention to my other students, which isn't fair to them. So the ability to find and create balance with students, students who need more of your time and how to um, really inspire and encourage the students who are a little bit ahead of the curve and when to know to set them loose and kind of challenge them. So I absolutely adore teaching. Mm -hmm. I've, um, I've probably taught thousands and thousands of people over thousands and thousands of hours. And I can honestly say in, in my mind and not to dwell on the negative, I've only had two really negative experiences and that wasn't with my whole class. This were just some people that for one reason or another just had a problem and not, that's not to even say it was with me. They just, mm -hmm. but, but there's always challenges and in classes, um, I find that I like the challenges the best. That's what makes them the most fun and the most interesting. And that's where I find it easier to bond with students, many mm -hmm. who have become very dear friends over the years. But just because you're good at making something and you're, you've mastered it, it doesn't automatically make you a good teacher. If, if you've got to have a lot of patience and you've got to really love those challenges. If you don't, that might not be for you. But teaching is, um, if, if you feel like you're, that's a good path for you, it can be an incredibly lucrative way to um, add to your income or make the base of your income. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very, very interesting channel. And yes, every now and then, and like you said, it's not frequent, you find that person that you really question yourself, why didn't I choose dog grooming? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny you should say that because when I travel to teach, I travel with a lot of equipment and tools. And for me personally, I like to provide as much as I can and usually at little or no cost. Mm -hmm. I don't like exorbitant kit fees and I, I don't like students to have to go out and buy 34 mm -hmm. items. Sometimes I think anybody who's taken glasses has had the experience where they bring the kitchen sink and they find they didn't need to bring it. Yep. Or the teacher makes them buy a kit of stuff they've already had and they didn't need more of it. So I try to I, I try to make that factor a little easier. But when I'm traveling, I travel with 150 pounds and maybe about 15 pounds of that is is my clothes. The rest <laughs> is um, art accoutrement. And yeah. <laughs> um, when I travel like that, I always ask myself, why didn't I start teaching knitting or seed beading? Carrying <laughs> <laughs> big blocks of clay. <laughs> uh, before I show a few more pieces of your work, I know you teach, uh, you say that on your website because you like to inspire people. And you said desperation sometimes is the mother of all inventions. But what I think people need to understand is that everything might be fine today in your life, but tomorrow mm -hmm. things may change. We just saw the government shut down 35 days where mm -hmm. people didn't get paid. In a moment like that, knowing a skill 
like for example, making jewelry with polymer clay can change everything. Mm -hmm. Isn't that so? It, it absolutely can. So this is one of the things when people come to my business seminars, they walk in all very excited and they're going to learn how to be, you know, make their living being an artist, uh, get, you know, my tips. And what works for me doesn't work for everybody. Mm -hmm. So, and I remind people that you, you still have to find your own way, but there's a lot more resources out there. And, you know, I'm not the final word on anything, but I learned a lot of things and, and whatever degree of success I've achieved, uh, a lot of it's been learned the hard way. Mm -hmm. So if I can help somebody avoid that, but what's really kind of hard for me at the end of my seminars is some people walk out very dejected oh. because, you know, people romanticize things like we look at history in the old West and the Renaissance. And I, I love a good Renaissance fair as much as the next person. <laughs> but we all if you stop and think about it, if we really had to go back to that time period, I think we'd be ready to come back in about 24 to 48 hours. Because <laughs> it's not, there's no funnel cake stands. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you, know, you know, flushing, you know, toilets. But it's kind of like that with art. So it can be very discouraging. And, and I'm not saying this to discourage anybody. I think, you know, everybody who loves this needs to do it. Mm -hmm. But you don't know when you're going to get paid, how much you're going to get paid. If you pay for space at a show, if, if there's going to be torrential rain or wind and there's no foot traffic or sometimes people aren't very polite when they come by and look at your work because mm -hmm. they're too free with sharing their opinion in front of you. Um, <laughs> there's little things like that that really burst people's bubbles. And, um, and you have to be prepared for things like that. And you have to have a little bit of a tough skin because you're putting yourself out there. And in my case, and I tell people this all the time, there are people who love what I do. And there are people who hate what I do. And there are people who just don't care. And you have to be okay with all three of those. And embrace the people who like what you do or love what you do. And realize that what you do isn't for everybody. Everybody has different tastes or, you know, you don't know why they don't like what you do. And that's okay. You have to be okay with that. And for me, um, I love what I do so, so very much that it's worth not having, you know, somebody, fortunately, I have a husband who I'm under his insurance, but a lot of people don't have a significant other to kind of fill in the gaps. And you talk about people being out of work. So a lot of people, if they take that career path in artistry, they're paying their insurance, they're paying all their social security, they, you know, don't know how much their paycheck is going to be from one month to the next, and they have overhead and expenses. And the other thing that a lot of people tell me is they don't like to self promote. And if you can't learn to self promote, you don't have to like it, you just have to learn to be good at it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't learn that you're dead in the water, because I don't care how good your work is, people aren't going to be knocking down your door. Or if they are, it might be a handful of people. I have a regular clientele of people who buy, I, I don't do production art anymore, mm -hmm. but people who come to buy my jewelry or want me to make something for them on a custom basis. But if I don't put myself out there and make myself known, and now with all these wonderful social network platforms, you can do that much easier. Um, your work is just going to sit there on a shelf. You know, and most of us can't afford a publicist or somebody to do it for us. We have to learn to be our own web designer and photographer and things like that. So, um, you know, uh, very wise words. And for me, I cringe inside when I hear somebody say, I don't like to self-promote or I hate to sell. Yeah. And I keep thinking, you're fooling yourself. 
You sell to your husband every day. You sell to your kids. You have to sell to your dog to sit on your lap. You absolutely do. Right? But when it comes to allowing other people to buy your work, then you mm -hmm. fool yourself into saying, I don't like to sell. Uh -huh. And I think that this yeah. kills, right? A lot of opportunities out there. Well, I think that comes from a lot of us are raised with parents who want us to be the best people we can be. Mm -hmm. And those kind of parents want to instill some humility in you. And self-promotion feels like the opposite of humility. And it, it, what I tell people in my seminars, what I've learned, and I, even though I think I'm pretty good at self-promotion, I'm not really comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, people who are watching that know me, I'm really, I don't like it. But it's a necessary evil, if you will, of being an artist. Mm -hmm. And I, I do have people who support and put my name out there and people, you know, who've gotten to know me. And that's that's wonderful. And I, you know, nobody gets, I don't care how, how talented you are, how, how hardworking and disciplined you are, nobody gets any success without the help of others. And it mm -hmm. comes in many different forms. But if I can share a tip, when... I wear a piece of jewelry and somebody compliments me on it or notices that that's an opportunity. Always be open for an opportunity. You don't know who you're sitting next to on a plane. It can be a buyer for Nordstrom's. Um, one of my best customers who is now one of my best friends for the last 20 plus years, I met on a plane, but she became one of my best customers initially. So it's not so much what you say when you promote. I think it's how you say it when you promote. So for instance, if I'm at the grocery store and I've been lucky enough to have this happen to me on many occasions, somebody looks at my necklace and says, oh, I love your necklace. I'm not going to say, yeah, thanks. I, I make that. I'm going to say, well, thank you. It's one of my designs or it's something that I've made. But say it with humility. It's, it's the tone of your voice. It's your, your body language. And then don't, don't just throw your business card in their face, um, you know, or, or prepare to tell them all the ways that they could take advantage of your talent. Um, I just say, oh, thank you. It's one of my designs or it's something that I make. If they're interested, they will lead the conversation. And usually it's with, do you have a website? Do you have a business card? Where can I find your work? That's your entree into taking the next step and saying, yeah, by yes. And if you, you should always have a business card handy with your mm -hmm. website or your Pinterest page or your Etsy site. And then if you teach, you can say, well, you know, I make work if you're interested. I also teach it if, because there's people who like to make it. And there's people who like to buy it. And I'm one of those people who likes to do both. <laughs> uh, and, and then I just kind of leave it. But if they have a few more questions, I also let them know I can make them in different colors or different styles. And I do custom work if that's something that your viewers, you know, are open to doing. But then I don't keep pushing it. I let them leave it. And for every person who told me that they're going to call me to order something, maybe oh, I want to say one in 50 I hear yeah. from. Mm -hmm. So, and that's actually a pretty good ratio because I think from like sales, it's like one in a hundred. So people get really excited, but they lose your card or life happens mm -hmm. and they just don't, they just don't get around to it. So it's that constant legwork and yeah. I'm going for the one in 50. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you, you also don't know if that card didn't travel to another pair of hands or right. if they talked about you. So yeah, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Let's see some of five more pic uh, pictures of your work. Okay. Is that okay? Sure. Let's see that. Okay, beautiful okay. blue one. 
So I call that uh, part of my Crystal Blossom series. And that's not really a Skinner blend, but it kind of gives you a hint of it. It's a variegation of clay. And it's also known, it comes under the heading of uh, ECAT. And people who work with mm. fabric may be familiar with ECAT, which uh, is usually accredited to Indonesia type of uh, weaving of fabric that creates this kind of uh, striated effect of colors. But actually, I did a little research and the ECAT, ECAT fabric actually dates back to ancient Egypt. Wow. Wow, that's beautiful. This is a, that was also a good example of mixed media. You see a lot of like uh, metal and crystal in there. This one too is, um, that's the inside of a triptych uh, vessel that I made out of fine silver. Uh, I work with art clay silver. And so the inside of it I thought would be fun to embellish with polymer clay. And there you see a gradient. And one of my favorite sayings by Leonardo da Vinci that says, where the heart does not work with the hand, there is no art. Something oh, like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wearing my glasses. <laughs> oh, vanity. <laughs> now, this goes back to that artist trading card period. And the thing I love about it is there's just a little subtlety, uh, again, showcasing gradient effects. If you look at the watermelons, which those are actually from one of my uh, button line I used to have with JHB, you see a little of the gradient where the, the pink and the watermelon fades out to the, the whitish color that, that, becomes the rind and then in the image transfer which is done on clay you see that the background also has that watermelon or i call it watermelon tourmaline effect um which is uh shadows uh the image transfer from behind beautiful and Thank one you. more wow look at this one <laughs> that isn't yeah that'll make you dizzy <laughs> i hope your viewers are taking dramamine um, so that's actually from one of my stamps called Op Art. So uh, anybody who was around in the 60s, I guess they'll say you don't remember it, but maybe you remember all this psychedelic uh, pop art. And uh, so this is a technique I invented called the Sutton Slice. And uh, I named it after a friend of mine who inspired it after he created an accident with clay that I went on to refine and, and develop into this technique. So it's, it, it's um, you can see it looks textural because it is. The black dots are raised on the surface. And again, this is another example of hollow form construction. Uh, so, but it's got a, a bezel, an open frame bezel surrounding it. And then the background, of course, is another example of gradient clay. Amazing, really amazing. So Lisa, tell me a little bit about how you get inspired. What usually inspires you? Oh, wow. My favorite question. What doesn't inspire me? <laughs> I, I mean, especially living in Vegas, anybody who's been here knows the crazy carpets in the casinos. Wow. Patterns, colors, shapes. I get them from curtains. I get them from textures. Um, I'm pretty well known around my local Home Depot, but when we first moved to this one, uh, this is how I walk down aisles of a Home Depot or an Ace Hardware store, kind of like. <laughs> and, Who needs and they Disneyland? Yeah, <laughs> they used to. They used to ask me, "Can we help you find anything?" And my go-to response was, "No, I'm waiting for it to find me." <laughs> things to cover, things to texture, things to reshape. Um, I'm inspired by everything, but because I'm so overwhelmed by so many ideas, 
journaling, if you're not already doing it, is a really good thing to do. Um, if I see a shape or a color pattern in a magazine, I, I just paste them into a binder and I make notes. And I know in my lifetime, I will never find the time to try my hand at everything that inspired mm -hmm. me. But it's kind of like the gift uh, dilemma. You see a great item for somebody in your family that you know they love come Christmas time when you you're, it's March and then come November you can't remember what it was that and you knew you found the perfect gift for them <laughs> so I, I eliminated that by just buying it in March but with art I journal 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 and because most people have a smartphone you should have a dedicated app whatever app that for note taking or whatever and just write down and most phones have a free sketch program take a loose sketch if it's not very refined because it's hard to sketch on those little screens yeah just get the idea but when you get home you know flush it out and put it in your your creative journal so even my husband uh who doesn't he's very creative with other uh, in other areas not so much with traditional art mediums but even when we go around he will see patterns and shapes and things and say he'll say wow that'd be a good good basis for a texture stamp oh look at or that a fiori cane so yeah who says you can't change a man that's very cool <laughs> uh rosie is asking what is your favorite technique to do oh my gosh you know what rosie i'm a pretty fickle person when it comes to to creativity My favorite technique a lot of times changes because I have a low threshold for boredom. So I tend to go in jags where I'm doing a lot of gradient blending or I'm doing a lot of hollow forms or everything is with foil and resin. So, um, and I bounce back and forth. I don't just stick with one technique at a time, but I find I gravitate towards um, a particular technique for the majority of my work. And then when I get a little burnt out on that, I moved to something else. So it, I really can't pin down one favorite technique. It's kind of which is my favorite technique at the moment. <laughs> uh -huh. I'm like that. I can get bored so easy that I'm always trying something new. Jen is asking, do you work with PMC as well? Well, I don't work with the brand PMC, and there's nothing wrong with that brand. I, I'm actually one of the, I believe there's nine or ten of us in the world, Art Clay Silver Masters. Um, the reason I work with Art Clay is, well, first, anybody who's familiar with the brand and knows the president of Art Clay World USA, Jackie Trudy, she kind of made me get certified. <laughs> <laughs> I had dabbled with it. I'd actually had the chance very early on when it was new from Japan. It was a new medium to the U.S., Uh, to work with Tim McCrate. Uh, he didn't remember me then, but we've been to different symposiums now. Uh, but Jackie and I had, um, we had publishers that were sister publishers and we, we got to be good friends over a, Uh, book signings at the Chicago Book Expo one year. So I traded her polymer clay uh, training or education for our clay silver training. And right after I finished my level one certification, she said, okay, now you've got to come back in six months and do senior level. And it's, it's a tremendous honor to be asked to be a master. A master is by invitation only. It's based on your body of work how you've innovated and contributed to the medium. Now, the difference between PMC and Art Clay, it's very small. Um, Art Clay shrinks a little bit less, but we're talking, you know, a few percentage points less than mm -hmm. uh, PMC. Uh, also, I like that um, Art Clay is distributed by a family-owned company, and Art Clay is kind of a green clay. And by that, what I mean is 
it, it doesn't come directly from mine sources. They use um, things that are going to be disposed of from industrial applications. For instance, x-ray film. They still use pure silver in uh, emulsion of, of film mediums. So they, they take that and extract the pure silver, and that's what they use to make art clay silver. So that's the reason I like it. Um, some of my students come to class, and if they don't want to buy clay from me, they want to bring their own, they're welcome to bring PMC. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it still ends up being the same thing. You know, it's if you're working with the the fine silver version of it, it's going to be fine silver, and there's you can't distinguish between our clay and PMC. But um, that was a good question. That's very cool. So polymer clay, PMC. What else do you play with? Oh my gosh! Well, a lot of people that that know my products know that uh, I have a resin called Magic Loss, and I have the lamp. Yeah, I call it the tanning bed, but it won't give you a tan. It's not the kind of UV light that will will give you skin cancer or a trucker's tan Mm -hmm. uh, because I have my light sitting on the side of my work table. So both arms are going to be the same color at the end of the day. Um, So resin, I love resin. I love how I can use it with so many different mediums. I love anything I can cross over from one medium to the next. I do a lot with wire. Love, love, love wire. Oh, really? Yes. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say my favorite brand because it comes in so many delicious colors. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Parawire is my oh. favorite brand. I use other products as well, but mm-hmm. uh, they're my go-to. And oh, my, man, I, I can't tell you off the top of my head how many dozens and dozens of colors their wire comes in. And it's, it's a really superior quality crafting mm-hmm. wire. Nice. Um, I do a lot with Swarovski Crystal. Uh, I started working as a freelance designer for Swarovski well over a decade ago. And then about five years into that, they started a program called the Ambassador Program. They invited different designers and artists to help promote the use of crystal in various mediums. And that program ran for, I want to say, seven years. Um, uh, There's a great book out there of the Ambassador's Projects. It might be out of print, but you can probably find it on on Amazon. It's... uh, if you look up Swarovski Crystal Ambassadors under books, it'll come up. I know that's not the title, but it eludes me that's at the moment. Cool. So crystal, which bakes beautifully in clay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then traditional metal. I use I do a lot of traditional metal smithing. Some glasswork. And I like epoxy clay quite a bit. There's oh, really? things you can, Yeah. There's things nice. you can do with epoxy clay you can't do with polymer. Mm-hmm. There's things True. you can do with True. polymer you can't do with epoxy. That's very fun. Uh, Julie Camero is asking, how often do you work on your art? Daily, weekly, just whenever? I try to work on it daily. It doesn't always happen. Uh, Kind of going back to the business aspect of it. um, There's a lot of time that also has to be devoted to the housekeeping departments of business. You know, keeping your books, filing your taxes, doing a lot of uh, writing or maintenance of websites, writing proposals for classes is very time consuming, Mm -hmm. Um, taking photographs, editing photographs, uh, things like that. So when people sometimes ask me, what do I do in my free time? I'm usually creating because a lot of my creative time is very specifically um, committed to finishing a specific project for a commission or publication. So I'm not always doing necessarily what I would do if I had a choice. Uh, Somebody wants something very specific. So in my free time, I like to do uh, some freestyle creating. And that's where I come up with a lot of my best ideas. The other 
the other time I come up with my best ideas is when I make horrible mistakes with whatever I'm making. They say, oh, now you have to turn into something beautiful here. <laughs> I, I honestly, I feel like I don't love everything I do. No artist does. You know, that saying that we're our own worst critic. I'm definitely my own worst critic. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that I, you know, anybody who's creative knows this thing. When you, you make something, I don't care if it's you knit a blanket or you, you, you know, you painted something, whatever, or even cooking. You, when you make something and when it's done and you're like, wow, I made that. You, it's everything you would hope it would be and more. It can happen. Um, but when that happens, it's usually there's something I tweaked in there because I usually mess something up. Does it happen to you that years later you run into a piece that you made and you look and think, wow, did I make that? Did I make that? Really? <laughs> oh, I love that question. So, yeah. So sometimes um, I look at stuff and, and the only way I can describe it is it's like clay threw up. <laughs> or, or I have a saying, ugly clay needs love too. Oh, but that's, look a, look at that. that's a really good question too because... Sometimes I take pieces that I made years ago and when I thought it was the bee's knees when I made it. And, uh -huh. and then I look at it 10 years later and I'm like, what was I thinking? But I kind of take what I know now and I morph it or I reinvent it and I turn it That's into cool. something that I think is much better than the original outcome. Mm -hmm. So I, I love mistakes. I don't see them as failure. I don't, I see them as a challenge. And yeah. a lot of people have to learn that if they're just starting out because Usually the way we're educated is whenever you're wrong, it's failure. And that's mm -hmm. not that's not how art works. Not not to me anyway. I, I, I think it's very important for them to understand that it's really when you see, like you said, you see a mistake is actually a challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing it happens when you make a mistake is that if you persevere, it's teaching you perseverance, uh, keep, right. keeping committed to get to the end goal that you want. Right. And not just, oh, quit. I'm not good for this. Right. Yes. After one piece. Yeah. Well, that's in, in classes. I say this a lot in my seminars. I say this a lot. Um, it, they, it took Ed, um, Edison over a thousand times before he developed a working incandescent light bulb. And I'm not that dedicated to I can, everything can't be fixed. But I look at it as a learning opportunity. Well, well now I know what not to do next time. I, I look at it and I might have to kind of reverse engineer it to figure out where something went wrong. But at least I learned from it. I learned how mm -hmm. not to do it. But I, I tell people, you know, we're kind of programmed culturally. When we try something and we fail, we tend to just move on. Mm -hmm. Now, um, that's, that's human nature in a way. But think of how capable you would be and how much more you can maximize your potential as not just an artist or a creator, but as a human being, if you were willing to fail over and over and over again until you got the desired outcome. Most of us don't have that much in there. Like usually for me, maybe five or six times and then I'll move on. And that's okay too. It's like know when to let something go is a really good lesson. But think about your potential as if you, if you're less easily daunted. Yes. Very good. There is a Chinese proverb that says, fall seven times, stand up eight. Yeah. Um, right. So I, you yeah. don't give up on the first time. Right. We, we don't learn how to walk if we had this kind of mentality when we are babies. And you know, because you have a very young grandchild, right? It takes yes. a while for them 
to be able mm -hmm. to master walking and talking and everything else. They don't quit. So why, when we grow up, we get into this habit of, oh, I'm not good for this, so I'm not going to try again. That's terrible. Well, I, I think we get it in school. Now, I, I was lucky enough to have a lot of amazing teachers, and I think all of us can say that. But I was also unfortunate enough to have some people who shouldn't have been teachers. They didn't like children. They didn't have patience. You know, you may love history. That doesn't mean you're going to be a good history teacher. Yeah. So uh, what happens in my classes, and this is a saying anybody who knows me has heard a million times if they've heard it once. I remind my students when they get a so they hit like a point where maybe they're a little frustrated or, or more challenged than they're comfortable with. Michelangelo didn't paint the Sistine Chapel the first time he picked up a paintbrush. And I think we all know he was born crazy talented, but he had to perfect his craft. He had to master his craft. So um, people are way too hard on themselves. And the other thing that really makes my heart hurt when I teach, people usually any class, but especially my classes, I throw a lot of information out of people and they're like, oh my God, I'm never going to remember what she said until the next demonstration. I tell people, I don't care if you need me to demo it three, four or five times. If you forget something I said, you can't remember how to do something, don't be shy about asking. And people get that about my classes. They know that I will, I will stay late to, to get them where they need to be. I'll do whatever I have to. Um, but what makes my heart hurt is people will come up to me and say, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot what you said, or I'm sorry, I forgot how you showed us to do this. And they're apologizing because in their mind, they think they, they failed on some level because if we all go back in our minds to school at some point, if we didn't know the right answer, mm -hmm. a lot of times we had a teacher who shamed us. Now, let's say there's two kinds of students. There's the students who we were told to read chapters one through five. And the next day, the teacher's giving us a pop quiz or asking random questions. And they call on you, and you read chapters one through five, and you still don't know the answer. Because unless you have eidetic or photographic memory, you can't possibly remember everything that you read in those five chapters. And you'll hopefully be asked a question that you can recall all the information on. And then there's a student who didn't do the homework assignment at all. But for a teacher to do us assume that the student didn't do what was asked of them and makes them feel bad for not knowing the answer, I think is such a kind of a, a thing about our educational system that we need to find a way to re-examine and, and empower people. And I tried to do that through my work, but I have usually it's adult women, uh, occasionally it's a man, but every time somebody needs help, they always apologize. Yes. And I, I say, I tell people now at the beginning of class, don't ever apologize for me for not knowing something. Because if you knew it, you wouldn't be taking my class. And that hits them really hard, like in a good way. Mm -hmm. And they get it. Yeah. They get it. Yeah. We sometimes have to say the same thing to instructors. Mm -hmm. And I totally agree about revisiting our educational process. That That is why at Curious Mondo, we have this different format because I believe today the way we learn is different and we are overstimulated people. We are always stressed because, right. you know, you get hyperstimulated with social media, with everything else. And we, we need to be long now when we are learning. And I think this is part of why you love teaching so much, right? Because mm -hmm. the moment you have that group be three people or 2000 people, it's like we become, we are all into the same channel, in the same mindset in that moment, and we are all challenging ourselves into accomplishing right. whatever was proposed. 
Right. right. Well, and science is showing that um, our our attention spans are much shorter than they were 10 yes. or 20 years ago because of, you know, technology can be amazing. And, and I'm sure everybody can relate to this. I love social media on one level and I despise it on another because yes. sometimes it's a big black hole. If you've ever been on Pinterest till four in the morning, like yes. me, <laughs> and you're thinking, man, I should get some sleep or binge watch Netflix yeah. all night. Um, there's some things that are wonderful about it, but there's other things that are changing the way we process information and retain information um, because we don't have to remember things like we used to because we could just Google it and how fabulous that we can just Google it. But well, yeah, our, it's affecting our attention spans and and, and our, our retention levels. So, you know, I'm sure people are always evolving and we'll evolve around that too. And, and people will get to a saturation point where they – they'll come back to more things like crafting and gardening and cooking. And there's people who've never left it, but I think mm -hmm. the younger generation, it's a little kind of scary to see that they're not coming up at the same rate that we did when, when yes. we had more free time or disposable income and started taking on hobbies or taking an interest in different creative mediums. It is going to be very interesting to see this generation, how they are going to face that. I mm -hmm. see many issues as well. And we are not going to go into that, but problem solving is one of them. From abstract to concrete, that's creation. And if you don't have that exercise, it causes problem. But at the same time, you see some young people reinventing old techniques and coming with different processes. They're really inspiring as well. Right. So yeah. both sides. I have a question here. You, you kind of answered but I, I want you to give us a ratio. Stephanie Chavez, how much time do you spend creating just for fun and for your own, own creative exploration versus projects for classes or items for sale? Give us a well, ratio. <laughs> well, before you give me the scientific calculation, <laughs> I'm going to say not nearly enough. <laughs> Whenever I'm creating, whether it's a very specific um, job um, or freestyling, um, I, love, I love it. I, I get lost. For me, it's my painkiller. It's my meditation. It's my prayer. Um, the world just disappears. But it's better when I'm kind of doing my own thing. Mm -hmm. I want to say in my creative time, probably 20 to 25%. Okay. Melissa Terlisi, women always apologize. I do it all the time, and I know I shouldn't. Yeah, it's how we are conditioned, right? Yeah. Cindy Thomason, Lisa, you are an amazing teacher. I love your classes. Oh, and thank you. <laughs> uh, Betty wants to know if you have any classes coming up soon. So let me take that. And yes, uh, Lisa Pavelka is coming here to Curious Mondo. March, if I'm not wrong, is March 25th, 26th, and 27th. Take a look at the website. You can register to watch for free while we are live and interact with her, of course. So take your chance because it's going to be amazing. It's going to be a master uh, class on Skinner blending, right? Mm -hmm. And yes, some of the pieces that she showed, blending. she mentioned that. Very cool. So, I, I also, my Facebook page, um, I started a Facebook page back when MySpace was the thing, and my daughter told me I couldn't have a Facebook, or a MySpace page because I wasn't cool enough. Um, <laughs> and, and back then, it, Facebook was a lot different than it, it yes. is now. If, if, you're, if you've only been on Facebook for 10 years, they used to answer your emails. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, I didn't know they had a limit on how many friends you can have. And at that time, they only had a personal page and fan page. But I one day hit a, a threshold where they said I had too many friends. I couldn't have any more unless I dumped somebody, which I wasn't going to do that. Every now and then people dump me. I mean, it's not so much that they're dumping me. It's just that they get off Facebook or they just want to make it more private for closer friends and family. But when I have an opening, then there's a list, but I have several Facebook pages. So if you Facebook search Lisa Pavelka, I have a class page. I have a, um, a like page, my business page, which I mirror whatever's on my personal page. And if there's not an opening to be my friend on my personal page, it's open to the public. So I publish my information about my classes there um, on my website, which um, I'm sorry, I have to say I need to get it updated. Um, but yeah, you can find out about my upcoming classes and events. I, I get them posted in plenty of time for people to register. And your um, website is your name, lisapavelka.com, right? Lisapavelka.com, yeah. Okay. But uh, Facebook's probably the best place to kind of lurk and, and see what I'm up to. That's fantastic. Let's see a few more pieces, and I have a, one more question for you. Okay. Tell me about that one. Telemarketer, just to pay no attention. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or recorded telemarketer. <laughs> <laughs> so that is an example. I love funky. Funky, you know, I sometimes I do things that are very clean and symmetrical, and uh, I like a lot of freeform work. So that's a bit of a combination. We're going to learn what's going on on the right, and you'll get an idea on the left. That is my faux fabric technique that's done over... Um, a gradient background on the right, and then you can see the monochromatic uh, patterning on the left. So the, my faux fabric technique is a variant of my Sutton slice technique. That is a bit of a hollow form as well. It's not a high profile doming. It's very subtle. And you can see it's suspended on the, uh, the cord by just another piece of clay. Clay is very strong and durable when it's baked at the right temperature for the right amount of time. Very cool. So that's a bangle. And again, more gradients. And it almost looks like there's a bit, a, a bit of an optical illusion. And what I like about this bracelet is people think that the striping is angled at a slight V, and it's not. They're actually perfectly equidistant from one another. Um, there's some curvature around the bracelet. I think that's pretty obvious. But what looks like it's narrow on one end and wider on the, the lighter end, it's an illusion created by having the Skinner blend interspersed between the striped, uh, the raised striped uh, edges. Very cool. Thank you. you we have and, a purple one. Yeah, so that's more Skinner blending. I'm still trying to find a way to, to teach those. It's very hard to do two beads, especially ones that aren't. Two beads actually aren't that hard if they're perfectly straight, but with curves in them, I call them schnoodles. Um, they, I just, I, I, that took forever and I probably broke about 10 times more of the, the hollow tube uh, clay beads than I made. But uh, I used some gradient blending, as you can see there. I studded it with tiny little Swarovski crystals. I uh, made this the focal point in the center using sterling silver, used a large Swarovski Rivoli and more of my faux fabric technique for the, the gradient focal center. And then um, some more crystals with Millefiori leaves to frame it out. This hollow, uh, this uh, tube beads are phenomenal. Thank you. I'm still working on when I, I'm happy to, to teach this if I can ever figure out a way that that won't make people want to shoot themselves. That's right. yeah. 
Wow. So, so that's kind of like what we're, that's going to be on our third day. We're going to go through how to make this project. And one of the cool things about that, um, you could do it in any color. We're going to talk about variations. Uh, that's going to fit anybody's wrist because it, you can make it some, well, not adjustable. So much. it is adjustable. It's banded together with um, magic uh, cording. And it, what I like about this project, it incorporates gradients. It incorporates one of my favorite techniques, which is striping. We're going to talk about precision striping. But when I don't wear this piece, if I'm traveling with a piece like this, it just folds flat. Mm. And when I have it in uh, my studio, I stand it up like you see there, and it becomes like a little miniature sculpture. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's basically polymer clay. You, you don't have metal around. No, no, wow. it's all clay except for the banding. Yeah, if we come back on camera, I can kind of show you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got the bracelet. Right here. Put, put, um, put the bracelet on camera again. Yeah. It, super sexy piece. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, come back to me. <laughs> See? Uh, oh, you have stretchy. there. Yeah, oh, there it's fantastic. Um, folds flat. And then. <laughs> And I want to learn that. I'm going to be so sexy wearing you right. those. But the, the fun thing about any class I teach is maybe you won't make the bracelet or maybe you'll make one and say, okay, that was fun, but I'm never doing that again. But you'll, you'll be able to take the techniques with the gradient, the striping, the concepts, and just use them for other things too. I like that you can, you can apply it to so many other creative endeavors that you do. So it's not the reason I like to have at least one finished project mm -hmm. so you know step by step is because it'll reinforce what you need to know to master just the, the skills like the mm -hmm. striping and the gradient that we're going to be doing and just start showing the possibilities that you have from there yeah. like you say on your website uh, we are going to focus on jury on the course but you said from jury to putting on a van correct is that the term that you you can use right. polymer clay in in many different oh, ways yeah. I do book covers. I do. Ta I cover small tables. I do. You know, you can make accessories. Uh, you can use this. It's it's hard to come up with handmade gifts for men, um, mm -hmm. but I, I incorporate a lot of those techniques in doing things for men, like letter openers you, you or did buttons. Yeah. Buttons as well, right? Yeah, I had a yeah. line of buttons for many years with a company that's no longer a business called JHB International. So yeah, they were handmade clay buttons and. Uh, that's kind of how my, my product line got started. They, I took my ideas for my products to the clay companies and the glue companies and the rubber stamp companies, and they were all very polite and said, well, thanks. We'll think about it, which I knew was their polite way of saying they weren't interested. Yeah. So I started selling it on my own, and I started my own website, my own web store, and it's longer ago than I care to admit because I'd be dating myself. But when I was having a meeting with uh, my first parent company, JHB, they wanted a demonstration of some of the process that went into go when I was first doing uh, my the buttons on spec, the different techniques. They wanted to understand how they were done. So they saw my products, which I had them professionally packaged, but they're much more they're they're better packaged now. They're a little sexier now. <laughs> Same products, better packaging. And the head of JHB, uh, the owner Jay Barr, said, "Wow, I see your name all over the stuff." Uh, who makes this for you? I said, I make it for me. And at that moment, he said, we'll always be a button company. Uh, we're never going to change that. But we'd like to expand and get into more of the general creative market. What do you think if uh, we take over the heavy lifting and you know the manufacturing and the packaging and the distribution and wow. we partner with you on marketing and 
I get a percentage of profit. And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, what, what is the question? <laughs> he knew I was kidding because that's that's what I'd been waiting to hear from all the logical companies. Oh, nice. Never in a million years did I think a button company was going to be the one that uh, took my little tiny product line and really launched it around the world. So I have a different parent company now. It's the Great Create. Both both of them are in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So um, that's so cool. That this is a nice story, and it shows us how we need to be open to listen when people come talk to us, right? Because mm-hmm. on a first moment. You, Button Company, would not go together, right? Go ahead. They cold called me about making buttons. I guess he was looking at polymer clay for a line of novelty buttons, and he had spent a while getting books and magazines and surfing the Internet to look at polymer clay artists, and he said he just kept coming back to my work, and he called me and asked me if I was interested, and we met up, and, and then it was just... Uh, serendipity that you know when they, they brought me out to Colorado the first time to kind of get do a deep dive into what would go into making a line of polymer clay buttons that he happened to take an interest in my product line that's fantastic now Lisa for most people publishing and products product line is extremely scary and daunting uh, was this always a possibility for you or did you feel that could happen since the beginning? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I go through life um, kind of like I call it, uh, and this might this might be over the top of the heads of younger viewers. I call it Sally Field Syndrome. When people buy my work or request my work, I, I had that moment where Sally Field did when she had won an Academy Award. Um, and she kind of broke down and was like, oh, my gosh, you like me. You really, really like me. <laughs> so maybe it's not me so much, but they like my work. So whenever somebody hands me their hard-earned money um, for something I made, I just there. That's such an empowering feeling. It's such mm-hmm. an honor that people chose you or chose your work. I mean, because your work is very personal and it's an extension of who you are. That's why we take it so personally. Rejection is hard, but when you understand that rejection isn't always personal and it happens to everybody. Uh, there's so many cases, and I, I usually give a few analogies of people who've gone through horrible rejection that you would have never guessed how badly they were rejected, how personally they were rejected, and yet they persevered because they believed in what they did and what they wanted so much. They didn't care what those people had to say. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name, and right now I'm totally blanking out. So senior in training moments. I'm almost there. Um, so there was a gentleman who wrote a book called The Confederacy of Dunces. And long story short, he wallpapered his, uh, his basement apartment in Louisiana with rejection slips. And he was so despondent, and I'm sure he had some other issues going on, you know, with his mental state that he ultimately took his life. He had been rejected by so many people and his mother, after he died, continued to send his manuscript into publishers and it was finally accepted and it went on to win a Pulitzer Prize. Same thing is true of J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series. She was rejected over and over and over again and she is a multi-billion dollar industry now. So I wonder how many people got fired because they they read or even didn't even read the manuscript of Harry Potter and decided it wasn't for them. So remember, again, it goes back to that whole being willing to fail. Don't think of it as failure. Thomas Edison basically said in a nutshell, when they asked him why he was so successful, he said, I'm not good at success. I'm good at failure. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. He did, you know, he said every time I made a light bulb that didn't work, I learned one more thing not to do on my journey to creating a working light bulb. He, he got tried 900 and some times, right? Uh, over a thousand, like a thousand times, yeah. over a thousand. Times. Yeah. So he said, every time I did that, I knew I was getting closer when I made a mistake. I was getting closer to success. So if that, if we start thinking that way, um, and don't think because you're not professional that you can't do it, um, find a mentor, you know, find a coach, get some help. But I see so many people whose work is amazing and they're like, oh, but my work will never be published because I'm not professional. No, I didn't come out of my mother's womb knowing how to do any of this. Yes. Nobody did. So, you know, believe in yourself and believe in what you love. And, and, and the only opinion that matters, sometimes it's not even your opinion because you're probably beating yourself up. But the only opinion that matters is yours when you're your own friend and the people who believe in you. The rest is just noise. Fantastic words. It is so true. And I think teaching allows us a little bit to empower people to see the, the power they have inside themselves. That's what I like in what I do. Uh, my daughter and I, we always say when we come to Curious Mondo, it's always exciting. No matter how many times we're doing the same thing. Because yeah. you, you know you are empowering people. You know there are people that start something new and find themselves in different ways. And I think teaching is such a reward because of that. A, f- a few last questions for you. Rosie wants to know what puts you in the flow. Is it when you're alone in the studio, or when you're teaching? How's the inspired Lisa? Um, well, you know, and believe it or not, even sometimes I hit a block. Not so much creative because I've got my journal of ideas, but sometimes <laughs> you just, uh, I, I know if you get into a rut. So my, my answer to that is if you find yourself in a rut, try something you would never do before. Like maybe you've never knitted anything. Learn how to knit. It may not be your thing, but opening yourself up to something new is a really good way to get your creative juices flowing. Um, I find for me, most of the time, it's not hard to get in the flow. It's hard finding the time, especially when I was a young mom and my kids' needs and the needs of my home and my husband, I put before what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. As they got older, I had more disposable time uh, to to pursue what I wanted and finding balance was a challenge. It still can be a little bit of a challenge, but um, getting in the flow for me, I, I have two different flows. So when I'm in teaching, it's a different kind of flow than it is when I'm just in my studio solitarily creating on my own. But one thing that's kind of really fun for me, and it means it just touches my heart so deeply. So my husband, uh, he, I work tiny a lot and very detailed and and he's very detailed as well. He's an engineer, but of course that's a whole different realm from what I do, but he can't stand to watch me work. He will walk in my studio and he's just like, he makes some symbol to indicate that I'm driving him nuts because it's just too tedious and too tiny. And uh, he he doesn't like watching that, but he says he can watch me teach for hours, Mm -hmm. mostly because I think he's vicariously enjoying my enjoyment of, teaching and it's not that I think I'm a good teacher it's that I feel like I usually have good success at making people aware of the talent that they've already had in them it's like unlocking a door and that's Mm -hmm. why I love teaching so much that's fantastic Stephanie Chavez saying such a great interview Jenna Edwards how wow nice bango Brie (laughs) the two beats are amazing Melissa Terlizzi, excited for the class. Luis Kilpak, how safe is the clay to work? Does it have 
uh, lead in it. Just wondering as sensitive to heavy metals and toxins. Right. So clay is very safe and it's actually rated within the U.S. by U.S. regulations as non-toxic, but it's not a dessert topping. So of course we don't eat it. And because clay's been around since the 1930s and we, uh, it's changed a lot. It's improved. Uh, there's been aesthetic improvements, but there's been safety improvements. And one of those, for instance, was um, in the uh, earlier in the 2000s, they did some studies that thought there might be a we lost her for a second. That happens. Let's see if she comes back. But I have some, uh, Jen Rowe was saying there was a fly now. Here she is, back. I'm back. Okay. okay. I don't know if you can see me. Okay. Yes. So uh, they discovered a correlation between certain types of cancers and a plasticizer called phthalates. It's spelled with a PH, but it's pronounced phthalates. So um, because phthalates are used in so many plastic products like baby bottles and children's toys, the European Union, which is usually ahead of the United States and Canada on safety measures, and in this case they were for sure, they banned phthalates. Well, because children often use polymer clay as, as a playful medium, a, a children's medium, as well as an art medium for adults, they banned it. So the major clay manufacturers, in order to continue selling in Europe, had to come up with alternative plasticizers that were deemed not uh, carcinogenic. So they did that, and and sure, and then the U.S. you know followed suit very soon after in in outlawing phthalates. We changed the clay formulas. Now we don't know what they're going to say about clay twenty years from now. You know, one day coffee's good for you, the next day it's bad for you. It's mm -hmm. just that's how we are with with all the scientific discoveries that are always being made. So what I tell people is err on the side of caution. Uh, I do know a few people who are so sensitive. You could be allergic to anything. You really can. So I know some people who work with disposable gloves. I find it impossible to manage clay with disposable gloves because I lose that tactile mm -hmm. connection. But some people find a way to do it. There is no lead. There's no harmful thing. When clay becomes harmful is if you're burning it. So what I'll be sharing with people who take the class is my top 10 tips for working with clay. Uh, and it's a way to guarantee that you'll never burn it. But we bake it in a home oven or a tabletop oven, and I share information about that as well. But <clears throat> one of the quick things to answer that question is, um, if you have, just make sure it's a, it doesn't have to be incredibly well-ventilated room, just a decently well-ventilated room. If you can smell the clay, uh, there's a few brands that have a tiny odor, but that's not unusual. Um, but if you smell it or it's burning, you got to get it out of the house. It's it, that's when clay is dangerous. Is if it's mm -hmm. burning, there's tricks to avoid that. But um, if if you don't have a dedicated oven, if you don't have the space or the money to buy a, a decent uh, toaster oven, don't don't get a cheap one. Those are terrible. You can use your home oven and just use a baking chamber, and that doesn't have to be anything fancy or expensive. Go buy an old roasting pan at the secondhand store at a yard sale and with a lid on it or tent it with foil and make sure it comes up to heat when you preheat your oven because we always preheat our oven with clay. We'll talk about that again in the class. But you will contain any outgassing that may occur while you're baking. I started using a dedicated oven maybe about 15 years ago, but for 25 years before that, I used my home oven, same oven I baked my food in. Uh, then I just decided I would either use a baking chamber if it was a bigger piece or my dedicated oven that you see behind me here. Um, and just take a precaution. It never hurts to take a precaution. It doesn't cost me any more time or money. But, um, but it's got a long track record of safety. 
Great, great. And our last question, Suderio, do you use old canes and revive them? And if so, how? Why, yes, I do, Sue. In fact, I can see, real quick, I'm going to turn my back on you. I apologize. <laughs> I've got a cane here that I want to say is, oh, 22 years old. You see that face wow. cane? Oh, look at that. I made that for my kids. I thought it would be an all-purpose cane because I would just change the hair, you know, mm -hmm. for my boys and my daughter. And this cane, this cane's over 20 years old, and it's still, I can bend it a little bit. It, it would need some reconditioning. I'd have to warm it up if I wanted to make it smaller. But um, the brand of clay makes a difference in cane longevity. So, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with other brands of clay. You like what you like. And a lot of people work with different brands for different reasons. They may like Fimo for one thing and Cato for another and Primo for something else and Cernit for making dolls. But I work exclusively with Fimo clays. And one of the reasons is the longevity of caning. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Lisa, any final words for people watching you? Well, yeah. So if you're watching this and you've never taken a class before from a live class online or with in person with anybody and you felt intimidated, um, everybody, I always say discover your inner artist. And I hope you'll join me. I hope you're intrigued by what I do. But if you join, don't join me, I hope you join one of the other wonderful classes on Creative Mondo, which is such a fabulous platform to discover your inner artist. There are fewer things that are more satisfying and fulfilling as creating. I believe we're hardwired to create. Um, I hope you like what I create and what I can help you learn. If you know some of the skills already, I'll be including lots of uh, tips and uh, tricks that can maybe raise the bar. If you know how to Skinner blend, how to make Skinner blending faster, easier, better. Um, but whether you join me or not, I'm so happy you joined us here today. It's, it's uh, been my honor and privilege that you're taking the time to hear what I have to say. And just whatever you want to do, whatever brings you joy, you know, believe in it, believe in yourself, and know that, that the, the most important part of doing it is the process of doing it. It's not necessarily the outcome. Very cool. It's so good. I'm so happy that you're here. And I think they are going to have an amazing time during the class because you're a fantastic person. I feel like oh. we are best friends already. <laughs> Thank you, Jahar. I'm going to send you your dollar. I'm going to put it in the mail now for saying such nice things about me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. And thank me. you very much also for being here and participating and sending questions. Remember, uh, Lisa will be uh, here at Curious Mondo with a master class on Skinner Blending during March 25th, 26th, and 27th. Go to CuriousMondo.com, sign up. It is free for you to watch while we are live, but the best part of it is really that you get to interact with her. Okay, I'll see you back then. This podcast stays wherever you're watching, never goes away. So it's a fantastic way for you to share with people that you think would be inspired by this interview. We have tackled so many angles. Yes, we talked about polymer clay, but we talked about life and the business side and pricing, what we think is happening out there. So, you know, you never know. You may inspire and change the life of somebody out there just by sharing this. Okay, and next week I have an, an, another amazing artist here with me. So don't forget to tune in. Same place you are now at 2.30 p.m. Mountain Time. Thank you again and see you next time.